The sermon text is from 1 Samuel 26. 1 Samuel 26, 1 through 12. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakilah, which is before Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him three thousand chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul camped in the hill of Hakilah, which is before Jeshimon, beside the road, and David was staying in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came... After him into the wilderness, David sent spies, and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. David then arose and came to the place where Saul had camped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. And Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, And to Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night. And behold, Saul was lay lay sleeping inside the camp, circle of the camp, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the people were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today... God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now, therefore, let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke. I will not strike him the second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, or... He will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head and they went away. But no one saw or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. The word of the Lord. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I think that's appropriate response. How many times do we see that somebody's spear is beside his head, and I think we're supposed to laugh. <laughs> I think we're supposed to get the impression that Saul is in jeopardy here, but he was not put to death. Well, today we tend to, as we think about our sermon text, when history repeats itself, we tend to think of ourselves as educated people or uneducated people. Whether we like it or not, uh, that's how we tend to think about ourselves. I think that our uh, culture sets this tone. Uh, If you're educated, sometimes we think of ourselves as uh, graduating from high school. We're educated with a high school diploma. Uh, Maybe we're more educated if we have a college degree, a little bit more educated if we have a master's degree or a Ph.D. Uh, We tend to think about ourselves as 
educated or uneducated. And I'm around people on a regular basis, and I'm probably one of them who thinks sometimes, why didn't I go ahead and go one more year? Why didn't I go get another couple of classes? And in fact, Pastor Sumter's talking about maybe us going to a, a class and, and studying about the Lord's Supper in the future. Yeah, I'm sure I, I wish I just had just a little bit more education. But it is true for some vocations, you cannot even be considered for those vocations apart from education. Uh, I worked around doctors in the gym and several brain surgeons. You cannot do brain surgery unless you have several different degrees plus all the years of training to get into somebody's skull. You cannot practice law without education. You cannot practice and be a certified public uh, what are we, what are the certified public? <laughs> What's the A stand for? Accountant. Accountant. <laughs> you can't be a CPA. I was thinking about PCA. One of the guys in California decided not to be a CPA. He wanted to be a PCA. And I said, what's a PCA? Pest control advisor. Okay, so I was, anyway. But you have to have education. You have to have an education to stand behind the pulpit in an Orthodox Presbyterian church. Um, you have to have a three-year degree, and you have to pass through licensure and ordination exams. But tonight, what I'd like to say is this. It's great to have an education, but the Christian life in and of itself is an education. Uh, you don't necessarily have to go to school. It's great to go to school. I think it's very important for you to learn how to read. I think if you become a Christian, you'll learn or desire to learn how to read. I've read a story in years ago in Martin, about Martin Lloyd-Jones' life, and there was a man who became a Christian, and he worked on reading as an older man just because he wanted to read the Bible. So it, but it doesn't really matter if we're so educated or not. It helps. Sometimes we think about people, I think sometimes we think about quiet times and we think about reading our Bibles and but we need to realize that most people who've ever lived never were even, even able to read. And so this brings us back to the idea of the fact that moms and dads pass down information orally to their children. Many, many parents pass down Scripture information to their children orally. But again, if you're a Christian, it starts with some kind of education. All of us have to have some knowledge of Jesus Christ. All of us have to be taught who He is, what He did, why He came. All of us need to understand that He came to save sinners. We need to understand that we are sinners. We need to understand that we have to repent of our sins, put our faith in Jesus, and we seek to lead a holy life. And if you start doing those things, you're going to be educated in some regard. So we learn these things. We learn to write our ABCs. We learn to write papers. We learn to do uh, scientific experiments. Uh, moms and dad, our dads teach sons how to take cars apart, put them back together again. And the same thing happens in this Christian life. We grow, we learn. One of the people I'd like for you to consider by illustration would be John Bunyan. You may not realize it, but the second most printed book in the world is Pilgrim's Progress behind the King James Version. King James Version is the number one printed book in the world. The second is Pilgrim's Progress. It might uh, be interesting for you to know that Bunyan, between 1628 and 1689, I mean 88, he had only two years of education. And he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He had to go to work early. He worked with his father. He was a tinker. 
Do you know anybody who's a tinker these days? Do you even know what a tinker does? A tinker mends pots and pans. But this man, with a Bible and a pen and paper, wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Now, he began to preach the gospel in a nonconformist church. But when the monarchy was restored, the monarchy restricted men like Bunyan from preaching the gospel. And so every time he preached, it was against the law. And he wasn't going to stop preaching. This many was put in, put in jail. And for 12 years, he sat in jail. Now, I know some stories about this, but he literally would be in jail and the jailer would allow him to go home at night just as long as he got back in before the sun came up. And so there was, but he was in jail for 12 years. And while he was in jail, he'd learned that he could write. This uneducated man in the eyes of the world learned that he could write, and he wrote 60 books before he died. And so this is where we get holy war. This is where we get Pilgrim's Progress. And not only could this man write, but he could preach. And one of his greatest friends in all the world was John Owen. And John Owen stood head and shoulders above him in regard to his education. But John Bunyan loved to listen to John Bunyan preach because John Bunyan was being taught at the feet of Jesus with a Bible and a pen in his hand. The Christian life is an education itself. And you and I, we are to learn. Uh, I think that I had to learn that this, in, in some, some regards, um, I used to think that you know education was it. I grew up in a family that was education. Dad taught all these years. Nothing but, you know, everything rotates around the school. Mom was the, at the university. Dad's at the junior college and... I used to think if I wasn't writing a sermon and wasn't teaching or preaching that there was no education going on. And then I wasn't a preacher. And when I wasn't a preacher, I thought, oh, no, now I'm just going to be dumb. <laughs> but uh, that's not the case. God educates us. Jesus educates us. as If we go to work and we want to obey God, there's an education taking place even as you do your work, even as you teach, even as you take the classes you may not like, even as you take care of your children. Every situation God is teaching us. And what God wants to do is He wants our hearts. A few weeks ago we talked about children being in Jesus' lap. God wants our hearts dependent on Jesus, just like a child, totally dependent on Him, and He wants our heads to be grown up. He wants us in His lap, totally dependent, and He wants us to put away our childish thoughts so that in our minds we are thinking like men. God wants every bit of your mind. God wants every bit of your intelligence. And some of us may be more educated in the eyes of the world than others, but it doesn't matter. God wants to take all of our intellect and all of our sense, and He wants us to use it to the glory of God. In fact, the harder you and I work at becoming Christians and work on this Christian life, we do not become less sharp. We become more sharpened. This is one of the reasons we like to do our Bible studies. This is one of the reasons we like to have conversations because we find ourselves being sharpened. And who knows, maybe you might find yourself writing a book. Well, the Christian life is an education. And in the school of Jesus Christ, we learn, number one, we learn by rote memory. What's rote memory? Rote memory means that we sort of sit down and we memorize our notes for an exam. Um, 
for about two or three years. I can't remember exactly, but I'll tell you one part of this. Um, when I went to seminary, there was a commuter room. I was living in the dorm, but there was a commuter room on the second floor. And so when church was over, I went home. I made myself a big peanut butter and jelly sandwich, went downstairs and got went to the commuter room and ate lunch. And I would memorize 20 or 30 verses uh, in the commuter room on Sunday afternoon. Nobody was there. I was hidden away. So I'd memorize. I'd go over it and over it and over it, and then I'd try to quote it. And I'd go read it and quote it and read it and, quote it and try to, you know, quote it again and again and again until finally I had it down. Then I'd go to church on Sunday night. That's rote memorization. And second, in the school of Christ, we learn by repetition. Now, there's, there's some overlap here, but this is repetition through life. Things tend to repeat themselves. Have you noticed that in your life? Uh, it was great. This morning we sang hymn 100. Everybody in here knows what hymn 100 is? Holy, holy, holy. Do you have it memorized? I do. I know I do. This morning I closed my eyes, sang all four verses with my eyes closed. Did I go sit down and memorize holy, holy, holy for four hours? I did not. But I have sung it for about as long as I've been alive, right? How many times we, we go over things, word for word. We know these things. And as we come to 1 Samuel 26, school is in session. David finds himself in a very familiar situation. History is repeating itself. David finds God taking him through a lesson. The choir director says, my kids used to always say, again, right? And if, if Ben's teaching somebody in a choir, he says, from the top. And the football coach says, run the play again. And sometimes the teacher says, go over your notes again. Same thing's happening to David that happened to him in 1 Samuel 24. Once again, David is hiding in the hills of Hakila. And once again, the Ziphites, what do they do? What is, what's their deal? They inform Saul about where David is. So they go and tell Saul where David is. And remember in 1 Samuel 24, David and Saul had parted ways. Now Saul gathers his 3,000 men and they're going after David again. Once again, David had Saul under his power. And once again, Abishai walked right up to the, into the king's camp. And they had a theological discussion at, at the side of the king's ear. Once again, David kept his man from pinning Saul to the ground. They took his javelin, they took his jug, and they walked away. Once again, David declared his innocence before Saul, and he called for God to judge between the two of them. Once again, Saul repented of his sins. He blessed David and spoke of his success in the future. And finally, they parted ways, and they went their separate ways. Here's the question. Has David learned anything? Has David learned anything as he's gone through this again? History is repeating itself from the top, David. Let's do this again, David. Let's go through our notes one more time. God wants us to learn in his school as we go through things again. When history repeats itself, I'm sorry for Jessica and I'm sorry for uh, Thomas, but you need to learn patience. I couldn't resist because that's what we're... But we all need to learn patience. When history repeats itself, learn patience. In the, in the passage, David's received this intelligence. 
and he knows that Saul is back on the warpath. And so he, he, he sends some people to go out and scope it out. And then he goes to a place of higher ground and finds out just exactly what's going on from his vantage point. He sees all 3,000 men from the heights. He sees them all out there. And he sees this cocoon-like circle around Saul. And remember, these men, we, we all know this, don't we? We, we, don't, we don't ever see a big-time person running around on their own. They always have an entourage. And so Saul is surrounded by with Abner and all his secret service agents are all around him in the cocoon of 3,000 men. They're all fast asleep. So from this high ground, this time he's not in a cave. This time he's not reacting to Saul coming into his cave unexpectedly. This time he doesn't have an impulse to kill Saul. This time he doesn't cut off a robe, part of his robe, and then fight his men back from killing Saul. This time David's in charge. This time David is on the offensive and he's doing something deliberate. Verse 6 says this, David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, he said, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So this is a bold stroke. This is, a, this is an offensive. And Abishai goes with him. And just, just for your information, who is this guy besides Joab's brother? <laughs> He's one of David's mighty men. This man has killed 300 men single-handedly with a spear. And so David and jo, uh, Joab's brother Abishai are on their way. They have sharpened skills. There's no Army Ranger unit or SEAL Team 6 unit that wouldn't be happy to have these guys tagging along. And so these two men go on their most uh, thrilling adventure of their lives. They slither down all the way to the camp. And the closer they get there, they see the sentinels, they see the guards are totally asleep. And so they move on through the guards and they move through the soldiers and they're totally asleep. And they come to where Saul is sound asleep. And the reason, the Bible tells us in verse 12, a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. So now here's the, the theological discussion that takes place at Saul's head. They're totally relaxed. They're probably snoring and maybe a little drool is going down their cheeks. And this is what Abishai says. Today, God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now, therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke. And I will strike him not and will not strike him the second time. David responds, do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointing and be without guilt? David continues, as the Lord lives. Now listen to this, very important. This is very important. As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come that he dies. Or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. In chapter 24, David had the impulse to kill Saul. He took a piece of his garment instead. His conscience smote him. Then he had to wrestle his men to keep them from finishing Saul off. But David has learned something in chapter 26. He's learned to be deeper in his patience. He's learned to have a more grounded faith. He's not trembling. 
He's not impulsive and has to stop. Listen to what he says in verse 10. Let's see what he learned. As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him. Now, last week, how does this tie into what we said last week? Who did God strike dead last week? Nabal. I think David learned from the incident with Nabal that God can take care of those who are wicked. If you remember, last week, David almost becomes a mass murderer. David has his sword strapped to his side. His men have their swords strapped to their side. They're all swearing out oaths to go and kill Nabal and all his men. David had been like a wall against um, the Philistines for Nabal and his shepherds and his sheep and his sheep shearers. And when it was time for David to receive a little bit of the crumbs from Nabal's table, he refused him. And then he publicly insulted him. And so David is going down to make, to have his own Nob. Remember what happened in Nob? Saul sent Doeg to kill all the priests. David is going to kill Nabal and all his men. But Abigail finds out. Abigail goes and places herself in the way, interceding for her husband, calling what he did her own sin. And so she saves Nabal and all the men and she spares David from a terrible crime. David saw God struck down Nabal. And God returned the wrongdoing of Nabal on his own head. And now David begins to imagine that the Lord can strike down Saul as well. If God can handle a fool like Nabal, who returned my good with evil, then God can handle King Saul, who continues to oppress me without cause. I can leave the king in God's hands. This is David's imagination, but he imagines even more. Now he says, or if the Lord does not choose to strike Nabal, I mean Saul down, maybe God will use natural causes and he will die. And one of my friends called me up the other day. He uh, goes to a church in uh, Dallas he said their 45-year-old minister died in his sleep. People die of natural causes. Maybe God will take his life by natural causes. Or maybe Saul will go into a battle and perish at the hand of the enemy. The Lord has a multiplicity of ways that he might choose to work and handle Saul's destiny. But his destiny is not for me to determine. In your patience, imagine the ways God might work on your behalf. Think about that. I do not know, David says, I do not know how God is going to put me there. I do know that I'm supposed to be the next king. I do not know exactly whether it will be supernatural or natural or be in a battle, but I do know that God must do this. God is not limited in how He might do it. But God will be the one who delivers me from this man it will be in His way, in His time, and I am to trust in Him. You and I, we need to imagine what God might do in our situation. We need to imagine how God might his, use His power to show us His adequacy and His sufficiency in situations for His glory and for our good. God had determined to deliver, it, to deliver Israel out of Egypt, 
But what way would he take? Did he take the way you would think? (laughs) Who would have ever thought that God would first stir up Egypt's hatred for God's people? Who would have ever thought that he would cause, that, that he would use this oppression to make them stronger? Who would ever thought that they, as the Egyptians hated God's people more, God would plague the Egyptians until finally the Egyptians said, don't let the door hit you on the way out. You know that little statement? I always like that. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. You know, you want them gone, right? And by the way, you can have my gold and you can have my silver and you can have my clothes. Just get on out the door. God has determined to make Israel victorious over the Midianites. But what way would he take? So here's, here's Gideon with 30,000 people on the battlefield and God whittles down the army down to 300 and God takes that way. He uses 300, not 30,000, to give victory to Israel. God had determined to save sinners. But what way would He take with us? What way would He take to save sinners? There's not one single human being alive who would have imagined by ordinary generation, not one single one of us, would have imagined how we would be saved, except we would save ourselves by our own good works. To a person we would save ourselves by our own good deeds, but God has determined to save us through works. He's determined to save us through works, just not our own. (laughs) He's determined to save us through the works of Jesus Christ, who lived His life perfectly in our behalf, who died for our sins. Yes, we're saved by works, just not our own. Works. This is the way God would take. Jesus has said, I will build my church. But what way would he take? If you go and you look at what happened in, to Israel and Egypt, he uses the same strategy. He uses pressure. He uses persecution. And so if you go read Acts chapter 6 and you read cha- Acts chapter 7, the persecution of Stephen takes place. And what happens? We, we see Samaria. The gospel goes to Samaria. We see the gospel going to the uttermost parts of Of the world, he uses these pressures. So we need to learn patience and we need to learn to examine the multiplicity of ways that God might work in our behalf. In the book of James, the men are going through the book of James and James describes patience in terms of farming. Farmers have to wait for the land to yield crops. They wait for autumn and spring rains He even cites Job and how Job patiently waited for God to bring to conclusion his ordeal. And you and I, we need to wait patiently and imagine how God might work. Well, second, as we think about some application, in your patience, and here's a big one, obey the precepts of God. You're to be patient. You're to learn patience. You're to think about how God might be prove His adequacy and sufficiency to you. As He works out His secret will, there's something that you are to do. And that is to obey what's clearly written in the book called God's Word. David does not know whether God would deliver him from Saul supernaturally, naturally, or through a military battle. But David does know he's not supposed to strike Saul down. And you and I face the similar situations. We don't know how God's going to work in our behalf. We face situations. We don't know the secret will of God, how it's going to work out. But we do know what God's written down. It's right in front of us. We have something that the world, that so many people would love to have had before us. 
We have the whole book right here in front of us. We have the precepts of God. And I've said this before. I'm going to just always say it from time to time. We need to do the next right thing. And we have the Bible right in front of us. We've memorized so much of it. We need to do the next right thing. On Father's Day a few years ago, my family took me home and uh, we had our lunch. And then they pulled out something and they gave it to me. And it was a big road sign that they bought a garage sale. They didn't steal it off the side of the road. (laughs) They bought it at a garage sale. And this sign said, keep right. Keep right. There it is right there. Keep right. Obey this word. You know, it may be a dull time. It may be a slogging and slow time. You might be wondering what in the world God is doing. You may be wondering how in the world God's going to work this thing out. But there's one thing for sure. We have what we're supposed to do to to the next step along the way. We are not to compromise and we are not to break one of God's commandments. It's funny as I was thinking about this sermon. I remember years ago a woman called me at, at the office at church. And I began to walk. I, I used to like this place like here. I would walk in and out of the rows and talk to people. This woman's talking to me and she says this. She says, Pastor Wheat? I said, yes. She said, can I tell you a secret? I said, no, you can't. Well, why not? I said, because I'm a married man, you're a married woman. I said, sometimes people say things to me and I have to call the police. It's not, you can't just say anything. And then the next sentence I said was, if you're thinking about breaking one of the Ten Commandments, do not do it. Two days later, she came to me and told me with other people around what she was planning on doing. So we don't break a commandment. We don't know how God might be working things out, but we do know what we're supposed to do in the meantime. And on May 11th, I'm going to close the sermon with this illustration. On May 11th, 1685, Margaret Wilson was condemned to die for refusing to swear out an oath of allegiance to King James VII. He wanted all his subjects to swear out an oath that he was their sovereign ruler over the the country of Scotland and to swear out an oath that he was the supreme ruler over each man's soul over the church of Jesus Christ. Margaret Wilson was willing to swear out an allegiance to the king as her secular ruler. She was willing to observe the laws of the land. She was willing to pray for him according to the word of God, but she was not willing to swear out an oath of allegiance to King James VII as the head of the church. That would be given only. That allegiance would only be given to King Jesus himself. He is the head of the church. And so she committed her soul to the Lord. Everything, again, is upon the pain of death. To her, the issue was very clear. She was to obey God and not man. Jesus is the one who said, Those who will not confess me before men, I will confess, I will not confess before my Father who is in heaven. So she would not yield the allegiance of her soul to the king, and she committed her soul to Jesus. For her unwillingness to bow spiritually to the king, she was tied to a stake in a river called the Solway River, and she would be drowned as the tide came in. 
To make matters a little bit worse for her, her dear companion, Margaret Lacklison, was tied to a stake farther out than she was tied. And so she would watch her friend die first. All she had to do to save her friend's life and to save her own life was to swear out allegiance to the king over her soul. But she would not. As her friend Margaret began to drown, she cried out from Romans 8 that not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then when the waters began to go over her own head, the soldiers came out and pulled her off her post and told her to pray for the king. And she said, I will pray for his salvation since I wish all men to be saved. But I will not swear out my soul's allegiance to him. The soldiers pushed her under the water and she drowned. She obeyed the word of the Lord in her death, this 18-year-old young lady. And she was delivered into the presence of Jesus Christ. The biggest temptation you and I are going to face in our patience is going to be to take matters into our own hands or to compromise, and we are not to do so. We are to hold fast to the precepts of God's Word. Alexander McLaren says this about Abishai. He says, Abishai represents the natural impulse of us all to strike at enemies when we can, uh, to meet hate with hate, and to do to another the same evil that they would do to us. But this is sin, and you and I are to do the next right thing. We are not to compromise. We are to do the next right thing. Our temptation is to take a javelin and strike our saws. Our temptation is not to wait on the Lord and imagine what He might do. And how many times would we avoid so many sins if we would just wait and obey and do the next right thing? James says this, Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. When history repeats itself, and it will, learn patience. Learn patience and learn how to imagine how God might work for you. And as you wait upon God to work for you, remain obedient to the precepts of God. Are you learning patience. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time in your house with your people in your word. Thank you for the opportunity as we go back and forth with you, Lord, in this dialogue of worship and praise. We thank you for calling us to this place. We thank you for giving us hearts to be present, to worship, to sing, and to hear your word to hear about what Jesus has done for us and how we receive it with faith in our hearts. Father, I pray that you would help us to learn when history repeats itself, that we might be patient, that we may not know how you might work for us, but to imagine how you might show your power strong in our behalf. Help us to praise you for what you do. And as we wait for you to do it, we pray for, for the, the uh, hunger and desire to do what is right where we, and we find it right in front of us in your word. Strengthen us now as we leave this place. 
to go out and to do our jobs, to do our vocations, to take care of our children, uh, to do all the duties that are assigned to us. We pray for your Spirit's power to do all of these things for your glory. And Lord, may we be witnesses for you wherever we are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.